Hi everyone, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, November 9th. Amanda Borsal Dan here with Zman Yisrael, editor Biranit Gorin, and political correspondent Carrie Keller-Lynn. Hello to you both. Hi Amanda. Hi Amanda. Good to see you. So much to discuss. Even as the U.S. is sorting out the results of its midterm elections, coalition consultations with President Herzog are beginning today here in Israel. We'll hear about incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's radical idea, as well as some potential looming legal conflicts of interest. Kerry will talk to us about the varying motivations behind those who voted for the far-right religious Zionist party. But first... A word from our sponsor. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds, made possible by you. And we're back. Kerry, start us off by explaining the formal coalition consultations procedure that's starting today at the president's residence. Well, Amanda, as you mentioned, um, today, President Isaac Herzog will officially receive the results of the Israeli election, which again uh, delivered a 64-seat majority to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and his right-wing and religious allies. So after receiving these results in the morning, President Herzog will start a series of consultations with all party leaders. Uh, This will take place from today, Wednesday, through Friday. And interestingly, he's not just meeting with the heads of each of the 10 parties that won, but he'll also be meeting with some of the heads of the smaller parties that were tucked into those. Um, And what he's going to do is he's going to say, who do you want to recommend for prime minister? On the Netanyahu side of the aisle, pretty clear we're expecting a resounding Netanyahu there. On the outgoing um, block or the block that was opposed to Netanyahu, it looks like a lot of parties are, are leaning towards recommending no one. Only Yeshatid, which is Prime Minister Yer Lapid's party and the center-left Labor Party plan to recommend Lapid, so he'll only get about 28 seats behind him. And his partner in this, Benny Gantz, who had also put himself forward to be Prime Minister, uh, head of the National Unity Party, is actually expected to not recommend anyone. And so Lapid and, and Gantz will be going to the opposition. Uh, Lapid is expected to be leader of the opposition, but this, of course, raises questions as to whether or not this opposition will work together or, or not really act as a, a unified whole. Okay, Birka, tell us about Netanyahu's revolutionary idea to sign a single coalition agreement for all parties. I understand that this is, what, the first time since the inception of the State of Israel that this could occur. What is in it for Bibi? 
Well, we've always had coalition agreements where the ruling party signs an agreement with each of the other factions that are going to be with it in the coalition. So for that matter, the Likud would sign an agreement with Shas or with UTJ or with the religious Zionism, etc. And what Netanyahu wants to do for the first time is actually have a single coalition agreement that all parties sign on, which is going to be very brief. It's going to say we all agree to do this and that and that and that in very broad terms and just have that signed and put in front of the Knesset 24 hours before the swearing in of the government, as the law requires, rather than go into details. And for Netanyahu, the the reason for this is that he wants to keep it super simple. And as one of his uh, close allies told us, he feels that there are some things that are better left unwritten. So, for example, all the legal laws, you know, all the all the changes that he wants or they want to do to the um, to the standing of the Supreme Court and uh, etc. They feel this is something that needs to be done and not declare be declared in writing. So he wants to f- keep it very simple, have a single sheet of paper that everybody signs on with very broad terms for the coalition, put this in. It'll allow him to do this very quickly. He, he really wants this government or uh, hopes to, to have the coalition, uh, the government sw- swear in on the 15th of November, which is the day that the new Knesset is being sworn in. In recent years, certainly in the last 20 or so years, coalition agreements have become a really, really convoluted uh, paper. You know, the, it's, it's, the, it goes down into very, very detailed, goes down to everything that the coalition will do and won't do, and ends up being a, a, a legal paper, even though from a legal standpoint, it's not binding. The, you can't go to the court and say, Somebody didn't fulfill his part in this agreement. So with Netanyahu, the funny thing is, is that some of his partners, n- namely Smotrich and Ben Gvir from the religious Zionism and um, Jewish power, they're not really thrilled to, to sign such a paper because they don't believe Netanyahu, because they think if they don't have something in writing, the chances of him doing it are even slimmer and smaller than normally. So so they're very wary about this idea of his, and they may spoil uh, his plan to do this. But if it does, it'll certainly be the first time in Israel's history that it happens. Really interesting. We'll go to a short break now. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. Now, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts 
at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Now, Bira, staying with you, let's talk about a probable legal conflict of interest with Netanyahu as he again resumes the role of prime minister. So first of all, refresh our memory about a November 2020 agreement he signed, which basically doesn't allow him to partake in what law related issues, something like this. Well, he hasn't signed it. That's an interesting uh, situation. Once Netanyahu was indicted in May 2020, and as soon as he became officially uh, indicted, the um, attorney general, who was then Avichai Mandelblit, needed to draw up a conflict of interest agreement that says what Netanyahu can and can do as an indicted person within his role as prime minister. And this uh, agreement was supposed to be drawn up and for Netanyahu to sign it, Netanyahu wouldn't sign it. He actually, it actually reached the Supreme Court who decided that this agreement was binding even if he doesn't sign it. So it is binding. The, the, the decision by the Supreme, Supreme Court came in March 2021, which was almost a moot point at that point because Netanyahu lost the election in March 2021 and, and therefore was no longer prime minister within three months after that. So, But the agreement is binding as long as he's indicted, as long as he stands trial in his criminal uh, affairs. And that agreement is, is all-encompassing. It states that um, he's to avoid in- involvement in any appointments to any to the attorney general position, any position within the Ministry of Justice and the Israeli police, any procedures with regards to appointments for these positions, avoid any decision concerning the court system. He's not to be involved in any way, shape or form with a committee of selecting judges for the Supreme Court and the district courts. Any decision concerning even as, as little as changing the law with regards to criminal procedures. He's not allowed in any way to be involved in those things. Not directly and not indirectly. He's also also the people who work for him are not allowed to be involved. So anybody in the prime minister office is not allowed to be involved. Ministers who work for him, like, for example, um, Amir Ohana, when he was the uh, minister for the interior security, are not for homeland security, are not allowed to be involved. So there's supposed to be this Chinese wall be- between all legal affairs and Netanyahu, and with the new coalition, it's going to be absolutely impossible to, to maintain this. The new coalition have put it on the table. Their interest is to, to pass a law that uh, doesn't allow to indict any minister or prime minister while he's in office. They want to cancel the fraud and breach of trust uh, passage in the law so that if they do, Netanyahu's trial gets canceled. So all of those things that they have now put put forward are exactly those things that Netanyahu is not supposed to handle. And it's going to be really a, a, a real impossibility to, to, to say, how would we know if he spoke to somebody, you know, in private? How would we know if he pulls strings or not? We wouldn't know. So it's, it's going to be a very challenging and interesting situation uh, where... His trial is still ongoing, you know, they're hearing witnesses. And at the same time, he's going to be the prime minister and the head of a coalition whose 
number one goal is to change the, the legal system. This is so fascinating, Vera. And does this mean essentially that the Minister of Justice cannot be a Likud member? No, um, it's, it's an interesting question because I think anything that will be done from here on is going to land, uh, ironically, uh, in the Supreme Court. Um, I think you'll see if he if he appoints Yariv Levin, who is his closest uh, ally within the Likud and who is one of the uh, primary candidates to be the Minister of Justice, I think you'll see very fast some organizations uh, appealing to the Supreme Court against that. Um, if he is, even in the Knesset, when they vote for anything related to legal matters, they're going to go to the Supreme Court. So this is going to put it front and center. The entire um, battle that we're going to have between the new coalition and the legal system, I think, is almost going to be put front and center within the situation that Netanyahu uh, has. And in a way, I think eventually the Supreme Court will have to make a decision. I mean, a decision will need to be made. Something's got to give. Either you're no longer indicted or you're no longer involved in those things and you can't do it as long as you're indicted, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. It's almost a, it's an unprecedented situation. There's nothing I can draw from from a worldview or anything like this or an Israeli history. It's, it really is unprecedented. And it puts, it puts a big question mark on what has always been said, irrespective of Netanyahu personally, which is, can somebody who's indicted for, you know, bribe and fraud and, and breach of trust, can he lead a government in Israel? So there's no answer to that. Really fascinating. Wow. Thank you so much, Bira. Now, Carrie, finally, since the November 1st elections, we've spoken a lot on the podcast about the numbers and the data of the far right vote. So let's talk a little bit about the motivations behind the really varied group who voted for the parties led by Bitsalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir. You wrote a fascinating analysis, which will be up today. Tell us a little bit more of what you found. So it's really interesting. Um, we talk about it as one party because it ran on one slate, but it's really three parties. There's religious Zionism, Otzma Yudit, which roughly translates to Jewish power, and a very small party called Noam, which only holds one seat in the 14 that were acquired by this kind of unit. Um, the party across its unit, because you vote for, you put one vote for all three of them, right? And they're very various um, ideologies that fall into the far-right category. They're ultra-nationalist um, for expanding Israeli sovereignty into the West Bank um, without giving full citizenship to Palestinians. Uh, that's one example of how they have differential treatment of Jews and Arabs. Um, also, Bengvir has said statements about deporting disloyal Israelis, including Arab citizens, um, as well as Palestinians who attack Israeli soldiers. Uh, but, uh, Smotrich, the leader of religious Zionism in the past, has said that he wants uh, segregated Jewish and Arab maternity wards and is pushing this wide street sweeping judicial reform. So there's really this wide swath of ideologies that... Um, can cross into radical, not to mention that members of uh, all three parties have had really um, strong statements against the LGBT community and wanting to change some of um, the way that that community is protected or not. Um, not all voters agree with all of these ideologies. And 
it's interesting to break this apart because there's been a lot of cries, especially in the left of Israel and the West, that is Israel now fascist? How could Israel have, you know, voted for the party that last time captured about 5% of the vote and now got close to 11%? Um, what happened here? And the answer is, in addition to a block of voters who really do subscribe to these ideologies, uh, there are two additional blocks of voters who need to be considered. One is a block who was really deeply concerned about the security situation in Israel, um, a block that uh, saw the internal conflict between Jews and Arabs that happened around the May 2021 operation in Gaza, something that has not been seen since the Second Intifada about 20 years ago, something that really shook up the whole country. And people in particular in these areas and people who are concerned about it uh, voted for a candidate that they thought could be tough on security after seeing the government fail to really address these problems over not just the last year, but really the last few. And in addition, Israel has um, an ongoing problem with uh, exerting its governance, especially in areas in the South and the Negev. They're areas that are just impossible to police and the police aren't even trying. They're under-resourced. Um, and people who care about these issues and live in these areas have also voted for Bengvir because they thought that the mainstream is not answering their problems. So they'll go to a candidate who is professed to be strong on this, wants this portfolio, wants the in internal security and the police portfolio. Um, the other group who voted for this party are voters who align themselves more so with a national religious movement who in the past might have voted for Yamina, a party that, although it held the prime ministership last year, is now defunct. And there's no other party representing this really, really diverse group of people who identify as as Lumi, national religious here, religious Zionist, although the party religious Zionism um, is is you know does represent them, they're the only ones, and religious Zionism is on the far right of that spectrum. And so there's a large group of voters who, um, out of having lack of options, moved to religious Zionism. Uh, Times of Israel spoke to a number of them over the past few months. Some have said they voted for religious Zionism by pinching their nose, uh, because although they do not align with most of the party's ideologies, especially the ones that we mentioned that are considered more extreme, it's the closest alignment to their own, and thus they fell into this camp. So yes, there are absolutely voters in Israel who align with this full swath or the majority of these diverse far-right ideologies. There are also voters in Israel who turn to this party as an answer for other problems that they are not seeing seen by the mainstream. Vera, jump in here. I just wanted to add, I mean, the, I think one of the most interesting uh, uh, effects of of this um, of the elections is seeing what is happening to the religious Zionism, not the party, but actually the the the, the section in 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 Israel uh, society, to a point where sixty thousand people, which is almost two mandates, voted for Ayelet Shaked, knowing full well that she's not going to pass the threshold. But they really didn't have a choice. They wanted to vote. They wanted to be counted in. And they just couldn't bear voting for the far-right option of the religious Zionism. So they gave their vote to Erechaked. There's also several tens of thousands who voted for Gantz, who is a priori known as not being full-on right-wing, because they didn't have a choice. So in a way, there is a vacuum. There is a space, if you will, for a new Yamina or a new kind of uh, more 
tame version of a religious 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 Zionism um, uh, party for the next election. It's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch what happens there. So, Bira, are you predicting that Bennett comes back? <laughs> In a way, you could look at the decision that Netanyahu made to push for the um, to push for the unison between Smotrich and Bengvir, and actually say that that was a mistake. Because if had they been split, I assure you, a lot of the Ayala uh, Shaked voters would have gone for Smotrich because they've already voted for him. He was in Yamin Khadash and Yamina before. They don't see him as being as extreme as as Benville. So in a way, he would have maximized, absolutely maximized all the votes that he could get from the right wing by splitting them apart. And that may happen now. That may happen, you know, Smotrich and Benfier are by de facto by now are no longer together. They were a technical bloc. They're already holding separate um, negotiations with Netanyahu. They're separate factions. So looking forward to the next election, it may well be, I don't know, but it may well be that Smotrich will become the responsible, you know, if you will, the responsible more tame version of, of the religious Zionism, and then will be the, the more uh, radical one. As for Bennett coming back, I don't know. I think you're the only person in this room, Bira, who can say looking forward to the next election and perhaps in this country in general. I'm looking forward to having a next election. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, both of you, for joining me today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.